This is a Strategist episode 803. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Guys, what's up? Did you forget our names there for a minute, Zane? That was a longer delay than usual. Oh, he forgot your name. My name was fine. <laughs> he knows who I am because I'm kind of a big deal. Oh, sure. That's uh, that's what I hear. Let's get it out of your system. Is it good? No. You're fine? Never. Never. Are you fine? I just... Uh, we're already into the show and you have not wished me an Eid Mubarak. Uh, I wanted to ask you guys how your Ramadan was. I just said there's so many things we have to talk about. That's true. Um, how are you enjoying uh, eating again for the first time in a bit during sunlight hours? I mean, I should ask you the same thing. I mean, I, how, was, <laughs> how was it for you, Corey? I mean, it's, it's, it's a communal exercise here on the Strategist Podcast. Uh, we, of course, follow all religious obligations together. Uh, and and that includes Stephen Carter's uh, Atheist Christmas, which uh, I know we love. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's all about pagan consumerism. We exchange Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens books. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's uh, it just really shakes me to my core. Um, I got a treat for you this year. It's going to be Dan Dennett. It's going to okay, be fantastic. Well, is he the newest playboy in town talking about no god? We're no, already very old. <laughs> Very, very old. We, we thought politics wasn't enough. We wanted to add religion to this. Is that what's going on here? Well, I mean, have you met me? <laughs> we, we ended last episode with a, a small pitch for the Quran, so I don't know why you guys are surprised that this is where we started. Okay. A Catholic, a Muslim, and an atheist walk into a podcast. Let's move it on to the only thing more important than religion. Our first segment Reviewing our reviews. Now, guys, this podcast has been called uh, Petty. Uh, it's been called Meta. And uh, nothing uh, signifies that more than this ongoing segment that we have, which is called Reviewing Our Reviews. Now, we do this every now and then, where we read an iTunes review uh, from one of our fans, and uh, we deconstruct it. Uh, and, and, and you guys have done this in the past. You're cool with oh, this? Yeah. Yep. I'm all yeah, ready. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so here we go. So this is a review uh, left yesterday. Uh, by a user EnviroCritic. Uh, we could just deconstruct the name, but we won't because I'll move on because I'm an adult. Uh, subject, uh, Pod Save America knockoff. Okay, I think that implies <laughs> us. Uh, and the, the text is, this podcast is like Pod Save America with host, singular, who are uglier and meaner. Five stars. Now, <laughs> so much to unpack there. First of all, rude. Okay, rude. Yeah. Uh, secondly, uh, I don't think host who are is correct. Corey, can you can you just verify that for me? Well, I've I've never been very good at the English language, Zane. But I I think you are you're getting caught up on a few things. Am I am I focusing on the wrong part you, of the you're review? Focusing on the wrong part of the review. <laughs> uh, really, uh, five stars. That's pretty good. Way to go, guys. I mean, I would give you high fives, but here we are on on this Zoom knockoff right now. Well, here's a, here's a, uh, Carter. Go ahead before I, before I no, jump I'm into our rant. You. I mean, Zane, like I don't understand the reference to Pod Save America. I mean, I, I'm not a religious follower of Pod Save America, but did like did they not rip off our format? Well, this is the this is the problem, <laughs> right? Now, this is why we're reviewing the review. Uh, yeah. It's not the fact that it's EnviroCritic, which once again, I really want to focus on in a different episode. Is he critical of the environment? Is he an environmental <laughs> critic? Who knows? Anyways, anyways, Pod Save America copied us. We have started, and this, let me tell you this, in 2015, Pod Save America, anyone want to take a guess when they started their show? 
don't January of 2017, guys. Oh I just want to make God. the point. And this Man, is they even had be- years. They had years of us. To- and yeah, we, we know we were popular in the Washington D.C. region. I mean, I mean, it is one of our top twelve regions that we have been popular in. So exactly. I just, right I just want to make the point that that these guys have copied us. Uh, while they're great working for, let me just check here, uh, President Barack Obama, which is, I guess, a qualification one might have. Uh, it is nothing compared to the fact that we originated this format. Uh, so thank you for the five stars in Virocritic. Uh, but also, uh, fuck the guys at Pod Save America. That's pretty much what I want to say. So, uh, exactly. so definitely true about the uh, uglier and ruder part, though. We got to give you that. That's, yeah, that's absolutely you yeah, are. So uglier here's the thing. I actually ruder. don't know if that applies to all of us. So let's just, like our religious practices, take that as a communal uh, comment and, uh, and, and accept it collectively. No, that was you, Zane. Sorry, man. <laughs> this is not where I wanted this segment to go. Our next segment, keeping the hucks happy. Guys, keeping the hucks, keeping the hacks happy. Jesus Christ. Hacks. The hacks happy. Guys, I want to talk about the wage subsidy. And more specifically, I want to talk about the wage subsidy as applied to both the federal and we'll get into it in a second and our provincial political parties. So the story comes out late this week uh, that our federal political parties have all applied for the federal wage subsidy. Carter, over to you first. What do you think of this? Is this like is this good politics? Is this just strange? Is this just now the new normal we live in? Is What's the political hate to make here? Well, I'm not 100% certain, but I seem to recall Andrew Scheer being quite critical of this thing. Uh, and he is ostensibly the leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, so one would imagine that when the CPC decides uh, what federal programs they're going to take advantage of, he may have a word to say. Uh, so in my mind, it's just bad manners to pick on the person that's giving you the money. Uh, you don't smack them up the head and take the cash out of their wallet. It's just not done. So let's let's be clear. There are things to criticize about all the programs that have been implemented by the by the federal and provincial governments. But the reality is, and I think that all the political parties or most of the political parties have seen this, organizations need it. Organizations need support. They need help. And a perfect program isn't isn't what we're looking for. It's something that that makes a difference in people's lives. And to criticize the program at the same time as taking advantage of the program, a program that is changing the way that businesses operate and keeping employees with their employers, that is just, it's beyond hypocritical. It is, uh, it's, it's not what should be done in politics. And it's just, I'd say it's disappointing, but really the CPC just disappoints me on every front. Corey, Corey, are the, other political parties, more specifically the NDP and the Conservatives, doing themselves a political disservice by like taking on this wage subsidy? Do they just remove a particular line of attack heading into whenever the next election is? Look, it's bad politics, but it's fine. People don't like politicians and political staff getting money. Uh, They never have. They never will. They think that uh, people are overpaid. Uh, they think that it's just some cushy job where all you're doing is tweeting online. The reality is very different. I think we both know that. And you're seeing a lot of snark online like, oh, politics is a business now. Well, yeah, it's a fucking business. It employs people. It has operations. There are things to consider in that context. So why not? I actually don't have a problem with the conservatives or the NDP getting it or the provincial UCP using it because, look, I, I mean, I can pay taxes and I can criticize how those taxes are spent. I can... I can use roads and I can say you should spend less on roads. The reality is it's a program that's there for a reason. They should be able to use it. 
philosophically, that's how I feel. It is bad politics because ultimately, again, fundamentally, people don't like politicians and political staff getting money. But that's a bullet that they decided they had to swallow. Carter, I see you vigorously shaking your head. Well, I, th- I think that there's, there's. I mean, Corey's not wrong. They, they, they are businesses. I remember when I was in theater, people used to say that theater wasn't business. Well, if the revenues need to be higher than the expenses, then it's a business, right? And political parties are the same. The revenues have to exceed the expenses. Um, but it's not the, the fact that they took it. And, and I do think that they're going to suffer a little bit uh, politically. I don't think it'll be a big thing because everybody, every company's tried to take advantage of this in some fashion because this is such a, a unique situation. What bothers me is the hypocrisy of, of complaining about it. Uh, and, and they're not doing program critiques that say this little piece of it's not being done properly. Here's how you could do this better. That, that type of critique is, not, is non-existent. Um, instead, it's just a broad attack on the programs, attack on the Trudeau liberals, while at the same time opening up your, your wallet and trying to take, you know, please help us, please help us, Mr. Trudeau, please. I mean, that's just, I, I really struggle with the, with the kind of the message that's being sent by that. And I do think that while it will not be able to be used in any, uh, in any election commercials for sure. It does undermine the the moral position that the the CPC uh, likes to pretend that they occupy. Yeah, no. Yeah, listen, going back to the whole uh, business argument, you you pass up on this subsidy, and you're a disadvantaged versus your competitors. It's it's like disagreeing with a a tax credit, but still using it. And I didn't see the Conservatives returning their two dollar subsidy, even though they opposed that back when we used to have per vote subsidies. I think where the conservatives have to be careful is the defenses they're throwing out to that hypocrisy argument are pretty pretty all over the map right now, right? You, you see a lot of, hey, no, this is important. These people have families. That argument, I think, is more subject to that hypocrisy uh, attack that Stephen just gave there. Um, but look, what are you going to do? You're going to pass up this subsidy and every other political party isn't? I, like that's That's just, that's not good business. Let's zoom in a little bit more to where we live here in Alberta, talking about the UCP, right? So a a party that has touted its free market, uh, you know, uh, philosophies and and policies. Corey, do you feel like there's a political price to pay here for the UCP? Uh, Maybe arguably the biggest critic in the country of the Trudeau liberals uh, to to take on this subsidy? Well, I think they have to be very careful that they don't start brush fires on the right. But as long as there's not a credible, more right-wing alternative to the UCP, I don't think it's a big deal. And I think you can make a, you know, a coherent argument that, yeah, it's a federal program. Alberta doesn't get enough. Of course, we're going to take advantage of this federal program. I don't think it's entirely misaligned with some of the, um, some of the positions that Premier Kenny has taken. But yeah, I mean, again, first principles here, people don't like politicians and political staff getting public money. Full stop. So there is going to be a bit of damage on that front. But as long as everybody's doing it, there's some safety in that. Uh, you could easily see this kind of spurring uh, a nice, you know, Western, further right populist reaction. But, um, but you know, that that's just something they're going to have to manage. And that's obviously something they decided that they could manage. Carter, what do you think? Well, I think that the problem isn't taking the subsidy from Trudeau. It's the fact that they lost $2.3 million last year and have a net def- deficit or debt of $1.1 million. Um, their financial management structure uh, has always been to, to 
to get out and try and get as many donations as possible. They're modeling the, the CPC small donor model, and they've been uh, tremendously ineffective at it. Um, and the Conservative Party, you know, whether it's the United Conservatives or the Federal Conservatives, uh, should be showing us their fiscal responsibility first, and their fiscal responsibility should, sh should start at the party. That was one of the critiques of the Wild Rose of the progressive conservatives. You can't even get your own house in order. Yeah, it was a critique that, <laughs> you know, currency with about a thousand people within five square blocks of the legislature. I don't think that people out yeah, in the public. Those guys write columns. And right? Carter, like, uh, a thousand square feet has media and the media will write it, whether or not it has a lasting legacy. And and there still is a, you know, we'll see how the, the, the UCB will have to rewrite their rules to make sure that they can do some of this stuff too. Carter, I want to stick with you on this because you brought this up. If you are part of the Notley NDP here in Alberta, what are you trying to do with this story? Because they themselves, as far as I remember, and you guys can correct me, the NDP here in Alberta have not taken on the wage subsidy. So they kind of have a moral high ground to stand on. So that compounded with the fact that the UCP have, what's the political hay you would, if you were strategizing for them, uh, make make right now? What would you do? I'm not sure I'd do very much. I mean, I'd probably ride it for a story for a day or two, um, maybe a week. Uh, but there's nothing. The, the problem is that there isn't much there there. Uh, so when we kind of when we break down a story and we're trying to figure out whether or not we can hurt the opposition. And this is something that I think that the CPC doesn't do particularly well when they're evaluating Trudeau's gaffes. Right. If everything that you choose to pick up and run with. You know, if, if every little fumble, every little mistake, every little tiny issue, you decide that you're going to treat it as though it is the greatest sin ever committed by a prime minister or premier in the history of mankind, you lose your um, your voice because you're, you know, you're essentially the boy who called wolf. And I, I fear that, you know, this this I would evaluate this one and say, let's, you know, Corey's not wrong. Again, that pains me uh, to, to say, but. It doesn't have a lot of currency in the general population, especially at a time when everybody's trying to take the same advantage of the same programs. Um, but it it does set a tone maybe with the media. You can start to, you know, maybe add this to the examples list of things that the UCP or the conservatives aren't good at. And next time they write a, a column that says that only the conservatives can return us to fiscal prosperity, you put this in front of the reporter's face and ask, how, how? They can't even run their own business. Corey, what do you think? Well, if I'm I'm the Alberta NDP, I am only going after the UCP if I am 100% certain I am not going to need to call on that wage subsidy because you want to talk about hypocrisy. It's one thing to use a federal program that's out there that you may have ideological challenges with. It's another entirely to slam somebody for using it and then get it yourself. That is true hypocrisy. And I think that when I look at the comments the Alberta NDP have made, they've been pretty measured. It's more like, so far, we haven't used the federal wage subsidy. Um, and, and they're keeping their options open because they, like the rest of us, have no idea how long this is going to go on. Not yeah. a the, the, the last thing I want to talk about on this subject is the messaging. So we talked about the politics, the political upside, downside. Uh, the one interesting thing about this story was how it was rolled out. So if you recall, it was rolled out initially as something that the federal NDP alone were taking advantage of. And it's there was almost a profile on the federal NDP, their staffers, their building. And, and I think what they tried to do was get out in front of it, own it, rather than the other two parties, the Libs and the Conservatives, who, who 
also were taking advantage of this, but weren't waving uh, their arms loudly. Uh, Carter, over to you. What did you make of this? Because for the first four hours of this story, and I know this is inside political baseball, but for the first four hours, the public thought this was a program that only, of course, the federal NDP would come in third place were going to use. But uh, what did you make of their strategy and, and what would you have done differently? Well, I don't know how that, I mean, I, I tried to reconstruct how the story was kind of broken because, you know, it, it struck me that that uh, the CBC, I think it was the first, it was broadcast on the CBC from what I could see, but I'm sure we'll get corrected if I'm wrong. Um, they thought they had a scoop. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They thought they had a scoop and they were going to out the NDP. And then I think, you know, it was really pretty quick oppo that just said everybody's doing this or, or at least you know, the federal conservatives are as well. And then it became, well, are you, you know, then everybody was asked. It's the same thing that happens when uh, Bill Clinton admits that he's had, you know, smoked marijuana within five minutes, everybody else in the, in the country, every politician's asked, have you ever smoked marijuana? Um, because that's the, the story of the day. So every political party was asked, how are you taking this subsidy? And very quickly, the stories were revised, um, but it will stick in most, in many Canadians heads that it was only the damned leftist NDP who were taking advantage of this uh, program for, for, for politics. I don't think there was any advantage to the NDP. Um, and it, I think it'll only reinforce, uh, existing negative stereotypes. Corey, what do you think? Do you feel like this was a strategy on the NDP's part or do you feel like they got scooped? I mean, you, you, we were asking you to, you know, guesstimate a bit, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Well, they might have been trying to soften the ground or somebody on the inside might have mentioned it to a reporter. It's, it's hard for me to say. I'm sure somebody out there knows and, you know, I won't speculate too deeply, but I will say, regardless of how it got into the media's lap, you would think that they would have asked the other parties before they ran with it, but they had a scoop and they wanted to break it before somebody else broke it. And that is kind of one of the challenges of of Twitter and the instant news cycle, I suppose, that people don't feel they have the time to do that diligence all of, all of the time. Look, I will say this. Um, one of the things that... Uh, politicians on both the left and the right have been pretty keen to do whenever they are not benefiting from any of these, whether it's subsidies or donation supports, uh, you know, because donations get huge tax credits. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I have some shocking news for people out there. That means that is public money being foregone, uh, basically the equivalent of public money going to these parties through that too. But, you know, politicians have stoked that flame, right? They've said, this is ridiculous. We shouldn't be giving public money to these. They should be able to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and, and fundraise for themselves. Um, and maybe they'll think a bit t- harder about that now, now that they need to rely on these subsidies as well. Um, I, I know there's more than one conservative politician that I follow who has given these great pay-ins to no, these these public dollars are well spent on democracy, right? Democracy is important. Why wouldn't you want it to go there? I think it's ridiculous it wouldn't. Well, these are the same federal uh, politicos who are also the first to say, get rid of that federal wage subsidy. What a waste of money. It should only be private money that is going to political operations. So look, I mean, I, there, there's a lot of hypocrisy going around, but as I am fond of saying, hypocrisy is the human condition. I don't think anybody's going to take too much of a beating for this. Uh, the federal NDP, I suspect Stephen is right, in six months. Some people will only remember that uh, because of uh, uh, the fact that after four hours, it just wasn't news anymore. And it's really less news once everybody's doing it. Um, and certainly when I looked at just comments and feedback on stories, 80% of the people thought it was just the NDP. So Carter, close us off. Any final thoughts on this? Well, I'll tell you, if the Alberta NDP hasn't gotten it yet, they should get it now. They got a free pass. 
That's a good thought. Very interesting thought. Okay, let's move it on to our next segment. Our next segment, everyone's a director directing someone's directives. Guys, I want to talk about political staffing. Uh, This is a, and of course, Corey, you would appreciate the title of that segment, coming from the ever-famous Managers Managing Managers. Is that what it was? The Ross Sherman book? That was the Ross Sherman line, yeah. Yeah, so a derivative of that. But I want to talk about political staffing. And this comes to us from a story here in Alberta where it was revealed, can I say, um, that that Jason Kenney's political staff uh, now totals $2.9 million. And I think this is an interesting gateway for us to maybe talk about what a political staff within the premier's office looks like. I think both of you guys have intimate knowledge of not just the titles, the positions, but frankly, the operations of these things. And you know, maybe I'll start with you, Carter, which is, first of all, let's comment on this particular Alberta story. So let's start with the Alberta part of it, which is, is this a scandal for, for Jason Kenney in the UCP? And if I can just, you know, try to catch people up, it was ultimately revealed that it's $2.9 million. Many people said that some of these positions never existed in the previous Notley government. The UCP has come back and said, oh, no, we're actually 20 plus percentage uh, points cheaper than the Notley government premier staff. And then you had a UCP MLA, Drew Barnes, come out and say, oh, I'm disappointed by these numbers. These are very high, especially in these, you know, crisis pandemic times. So let's just start with the political story at hand and then let's go deeper. Carter, is this a scandal that the UCP needs to be worried about? Well, I do think it's one of those moments where they can't, this type of story can take off. Uh, and there's two two sides to it. The first is just the amount of money that's being spent. You know, there will be cutbacks. There have been cutbacks uh, throughout the civil service. Uh, So there will be people who say we should have a cutback across all the, you know, all the government staffers as well. Um, But on, and and then the other piece of it is just the sheer dollar value of some of these salaries. Uh, Some of the staff are making, uh, over $200,000 a year. I, you know, in full disclosure, I made more than $200,000 a year when I was working in the premier's office. Um, that's, that is what it is. Uh, that I asked, I got, and we move on. Um, that to me is the bigger one. You know, when you have somebody who's making enough money, you know, making so much more money and Albertans are hurting, um, they're still making that money through this COVID crisis. I would bet that they're all earning that money, uh, with the notable exception of Matt Wolf. Um, they <laughs> shots fired. <laughs> what? It's totally true. Um, there are these are jobs that need to be done. These, there are jobs in the premier's office that need to be done. I don't know how much money Allison Redford's office cost versus Rachel Notley's office versus um, Jason Kenney's office. First of all, it doesn't just break into these little boxes that cleanly you don't put every every staffer that is serves the premier uh doesn't necessarily work out of the premier's office um you know we have uh departments and you all of it's public which is how all of this gets known mm-hmm. um, but because because these things are so difficult to compare kenny will be able to 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 brush off criticism saying I saved 20% compared to what Notley cost. I'm sure Notley was able to say she saved 20% over what Redford cost. And I know because I was there when, you know, we were dealing with uh, a changed political environment as a legacy of Ralph Klein um, because, you know, Ralph Klein had eliminated the, these issue managers 
they used to be called policy. Uh, I can't remember the exact title, but they were policy people in every ministry, including the premier's office. And he got rid of all of them. Um, so we didn't have those places. We didn't have those positions. So there's there's a lot of, it's almost impossible to compare. So long answer short, it's almost impossible to compare. I think Kenny will be able to brush it off. I think he's going to have a harder time with the Matt Wolfs of the world making uh, 200K plus uh, to seemingly simply tweet at um, those who disagree with uh, with the premier. Corey, what do you think? Is there is there a political story here, or is this is this just an extension to your comments from earlier that that, that the only political story could be that people don't like public servants of any kind or political staffers getting paid? Yeah, and and actually the way you teed that up, I have a million things to say on this topic, all of which will be boring if I go too far. So I'll try to keep it on treetops. But look, first of all. Uh, there's a difference between political staff and and public service yeah. staff that is not well understood, I think, and fair enough, right? Uh, because those lines haven't always been perfectly adhered to, which sort of builds into my point here. But political staff are allowed to be um, political, right? Like they they can have an axe to grind. They can they can put what we'd call contrast messaging in there more aggressively. Talk about how they're better than you know, the other side. Uh, public servants aren't like that. We, uh, you know, I was a public servant up until two and a half months ago, and uh, we have a code of conduct and we're expected to comport ourselves in a certain fashion. And, um, and and there's just different rules of the game. And so I say that as a tee up to this point. A growing political staff isn't always bad because those positions existed in the client era. Those positions exist in a lot of governments, but what they will often do in absence of putting them on the books as political staff within a premier's office is hide them within what is supposed to be a nonpartisan public service. So in many ways, when you see it, like quite candidly, it can be, you know, somebody having the courage to just say, all right, we're going to put some sunlight on this. This is the way it should be done. Certainly Rachel Notley with the release of all of the political contracts was a big step in that direction, you know, moving a lot of the issues management there. Stephen, when you were chief of staff under Redford, uh, the creation of the press secretaries, which moved the political part of communications out of the public service, undoubtedly grew the size of the political staff, but it was the right thing to do. And then the last thing I'll say is there's a lot of ways to measure growth and where the where the, where the the people are. There's the premier's office, there's the minister's office. Are you talking about political staff overall? Are you talking about uh, positions also that might be funded by individual departments? It, it's all over the place. But, you know, fundamentally... This comes back to people do not like to see um, political staff making big money. And maybe I'll take a breath there, Zane. But before we get off this topic, I have something to say about that. Okay. Okay. I'll come back to you. And I want to maybe go to Carter for a second because you've teed something up for me, Corey, which is the construction of a political office. So if I'm going to open a bracket and I'll close yours in a second, Corey, Carter, open this bracket for me. Walk me through. You become chief of staff to Premier Redford, right? Uh, what are you doing to construct that office uh, in, in, in the Premier's office, quote unquote? And then if you have extra sort of needs, extra sort of desires to like extend that political operation, what are some of the things that you guys did? How did you play around with this? Like walk us through uh, what, what constructing a political staff looked like. Well, let's start with who are my real stakeholders? So first of all, we have to separate the three. So in Alberta, especially the, the three elements of, of governing of politics blend together. So it's supposed to be separate and distinct. So the separation is and distinct is the party, the legislature and the government. 
And people will go, what, 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 what do you mean? How are these things different? Well, they are different. The legislature, the actual legislative body is the 87 MLAs. They are the ones who make the laws and then the government implements those laws and manages that through the ministries and through uh, those processes. So I have to manage the legislature differently than I manage the government, but I'm still the chief of staff of both of those. And then a totally different world, there's the party, right? Which is the party memberships, the actual political um, the political arm, right? And that's this is why a party can pass a policy at their policy convention that never sees the light of day in government because it's ultimately the legislature that has to pass it for the government, you know, for the government to dig into it. When you have those three things, then it starts to dictate the functions. So if we focus principally on the legislature and the government, just as the, the, the primary areas, I have to have staff that manage the legislative process, which means I have to manage my caucus, which means I have to manage um, the legislature, the, 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 the business of the house, uh, the business of the legislature, the committees, um, all of these things are functions of government and they need to be managed and they are managed both through the uh, the premier's office and through the liaison's office. And those different liaison's offices have different names. But the, the, the primary objective, like we had a deputy chief of staff whose sole job it was to manage caucus in the legislative process. Um, that deputy chief of staff made sure that our caucus was happy because there's a lot of moving pieces and every single member of your caucus knows that they should have been a cabinet minister, um, especially the ones that weren't made cabinet ministers. Um, they, so they have, they are difficult to manage. And then we had a um, deputy chief of staff who was in charge of policy and trying to figure out what the hell the right solutions are. One of the things they don't tell you when you get into politics is that all the easy decisions are made by the bureaucrats. If it is an 80-20 decision, it is made by a bureaucrat. So, so far away from the premier's office, you don't even, you don't hear about it. It didn't even happen in your world. The only things that get to the premier's office are 5149s, right? What should we do, right? We, we have an electricity problem. Um, they're threatening to turn off one of the electricity plants. What do you think we should do? Fuck, I don't know. Like, why are you coming here? Um, shouldn't someone smarter than me be making this decision? But it's a political decision. So it winds up in the premier's office and we have to make those types of decisions uh, quickly and, and wisely. And so you have to have a deputy chief of staff or in some cases a principal secretary who's managing the actual policy. And then you've got the chief of staff who's supposed to be running all of those things. And then underneath that, you've got the comms piece. Uh, you've got the policy shops, um, which we often hide in the executive council, um, but they are, you know, they're, they're policy people working for the premier in the bureaucracy. So, so Carter, can I ask you straight up, like, and this is, this is not a criticism to, to how your management, but is it true that like you guys ultimately had political staff in places that were not the premier's office serving the premier? Well, we, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, but what does serving the premier mean? Right. Yeah. So we have we have an international affairs department uh, in the international affairs department. We had we traveled a tremendous amount. So we had a staff person who managed uh, a large component of our international travel. Now, they did other things. They and, and that wasn't necessarily political. Right. Like everybody in the government serves the premier in some fashion. Um, 
so, you know, it's, it's, it's just a question of, is it political? And the answer is, you know, travel's not really political. You can house, um, I think that Kenny's got a, a tour manager. You can very easily house a tour manager in what was called the Public Affairs Bureau before Corey ridiculously changed the name. Um, <laughs> you know, you could very easily house someone like that in that space. It's not political. Managing the premier's travel, um, that's not where the decision's being made. It's about making sure that there's a, a car to take that person, you know, to take the premier from one event to the next event. Um, it doesn't have to be managed in the office as a political and this is, I think, where Klein was trying to take it. Try and take every, take us down to the base levels of politics. What is the actual politics? And his position was, and uh, I think it was Jake Epp. Was it, who was the finance minister who took us down to like nothing? Uh, I'm wrong with Epp, but it was someone with a three-letter last name. Um, anyways, the the model changed, and they said the the only really political staff are the minister, and they took us down to like a scheduling assistant and an EA and a minister. I mean, the minister's offices became incredibly small and we just found we, we were still wrestling with that legacy when we got in. And that's where we created the chief of staff position and the uh, press secretary position uh, so that there'd be an extra person for the ministers uh, to think about the policy and the long-term implications, uh, not within the political lens. The last 10 minutes were probably the uh, the pillow talk you needed if you want Stephen Carter talking nerdy to you about about uh, political <laughs> staffing. That was quite that the deep dive. Car- very quick. It was like, oh, my God, I love this stuff. Let's talk. Yeah, Let's no. Talk. I, I mean, I, th- I think it's quite illuminating. I think there's some headlines here, right? Like you, you had autonomy to construct your office how you saw. You were able to, let's just put it frankly, bury political staff in places that people may not go looking for in certain ways. Uh, I, and I know you're cringing at that, but that's kind of what it was. Corey, is that is that fair? You're shaking your head. You're also cringing. I'm just trying to understand. Like you guys are both saying, well, yes and no. But Corey, add some color. What, 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 am, I, what am I getting wrong? Yeah, well, what I would say, Zane, is that if they're in the public. Oh, so there is there are examples of that in Alberta's history. There's no question. Right. I think that they are pretty rare these days because generally speaking, people have understood that's a that's a pretty dangerous thing to do. But uh, it's no question that certain jobs within the public service just work better if they are politically aligned and politically attuned to the government of the day. And um, look, the, um, the reality is uh, they still need to be qualified for the job. They still need to be able to manage within the public service and they still need to be able to, to competently deliver those things or else the public service will chew them up and spit them out. That's just the nature of the public service, right? And and so much of it requires you to, to follow the rules and play the games. But um, so I, I would just caution you about just painting too broad of a brush and implying that the people who work in the policy coordination office, for example, uh, working up policy documents for the premier are, you know, quote unquote, political hacks. That's not the case. They, they are required to do a job and they, are, they would be required to do the same job on any government. It's just simply easier if they have kind of a philosophical alignment with the government of the day. Um, this, this is a deep dive and man alive, I, uh, I, I think that uh, we could take this an awful lot of different ways, but I, I want to kind of drag us out for a second and just say the, the premier is the premier and the premier can structure his or her office however they see fit and executive council which 
Carter mentioned, but didn't explain really what it was, is the premier's ministry. So like the premier is a minister like any other and executive councils, their job, the public service and whatnot, is just to make it so everywhere as need be. And uh, they do, but that's not to say there aren't rules. And that's not to say people don't try to bend rules. I wouldn't want to leave the impression the public service doesn't push back when it's inappropriate. It's, It's a very complicated picture. And I think people try to make it very simple start pounding their fists and saying, what an outrage. Look at this premier's office staff. It got big, right? Well, maybe it got big for good reasons. Uh, Maybe it got big because the work changed. Maybe it got big because what was previously being buried in a ministry no longer is. Um, And then people look at the salaries and they say, nobody should make more than the premier. Well, here's a, a bit of a news flash for everybody. The premier gets paid shit given their responsibilities and given their workload. The CTF said nobody should make more than the premier. That is a lazy red meat comment. And I can understand why Jason Kenney reduced his salary. It was still a stupid idea, right? You're conservatives, the supply and demand, right? Market economics. You want good people in these jobs? You have to offer them good salaries because guess what? These jobs are fucking terrible. And if you think they set you up for the next job, you're living off of a scenario that maybe existed 40 years ago, but definitely doesn't now. Instead, it's a scarlet letter. You are aligned with a political party and and non-political people will be like, ooh, oh yeah, it might be sending a signal if we we hire them. They might think that uh, we're conservatives or new Democrats or liberals or whatnot, right? It is not an easy job. And if you want good people in those jobs doing good work, you got to pay them. I argue that uh, you should probably have half as many MLAs being paid twice as much. Again, market economics here, but that that doesn't seem to be an argument that's got any kind of currency with the public, which is really unfortunate. I mean, we we pay them less than they could make in the private sector. We burn any future employment opportunities they have. We make them work all hours of the day, and we wonder why the quality of politicians is slowly declining over time. Yeah, and there is no there is no ladder. I mean, I'll just pick up on one point that Corey made. There is no ladder that you climb out of the premier's office. There's no ladder that you climb out of these jobs. These jobs will haunt you uh, for the rest of your life. And people do them because they want to try and make the be- the, the, the world a better place. Um, but all we see is people getting punished. Uh, I mean, Alice, Alice and Redford still being punished for being premier. Um, you know, I'm punished for working for Alice and Redford. That's ridiculous to me. It's utterly ridiculous because like them, loathe them. I don't really care. They're trying to do the best for the for the province. Just because you don't agree with them doesn't mean that uh, they should suffer financial consequence forever. Uh, Corey, hey, close, yeah. us, close us off on this. Yeah. Yeah, Carter, you know who's not being punished? Me. Works for the Liberals, Conservatives, New Democrats. I'm a real triple threat. Okay, well, yeah, uh, now you're you now he's just <laughs> asking for it, this piece of shit. I actually, you know what? Before I move on, I've actually got a question. Um, talk to me very quickly about if you are Jason Kenny right now, this government, let's just say this starts picking up more traction. There's more currency in the media for this story. There's more currency uh, within the public for this conversation because these numbers are easier to understand than billions, right? It's people's salaries, relatable. If this starts picking up, which it will, if it's in this province or at the national level, it will somewhere. What would your political instinct say how to defend this? Would you go down the track of saying, you know, Corey, to your point, market economics, like these people deserve good salaries. Like what is the political communique right now that you're thinking of if you worked in any of these premier's offices or if you're leading up or spearheading the the messaging on this? Well, look, I've seen 18 different versions of this. This comes up all of the time. I can think of. Yeah. 
in my just under four years with the government of Alberta, the number of times a version of this came up is is too many for my hands. Um, and, you know, you just sort of kick it and you wait for the controversy to go down and then you you move on. Like everybody gets their turn in the spotlight when they get a big job like that. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot of 200 K plus jobs in 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 politics. I mean, that's um, the thing is, and I, and I will say, lest anybody think I am saying that political staff are just this unalloyed good. I think that people at the top of the game in politics Almost all of them deserve every dollar they're making. Uh, you know, they work incredibly hard. They do things you don't see. You only see their Twitter accounts. You're not seeing all of the other stuff. But kind of that next layer, the political gang have a really hard time of filling with, in my opinion, people who have the qualifications you would expect for that job. And there's a real delineation here, which is tough to see in real time, but you sort of see over time. Is this the best job you're ever going to have or not? And if the answer is yes, you should really be thinking about whether you're paying those people too much because then you are paying over market just to sort of continue my metaphor. But um, the uh, the reality is there are there are people who could be doing things getting paid way, way more, but they've decided to take a $220,000 job and that's a lot of money and nobody should plead poverty. But we should also not kid ourselves that 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 is sort of commiserate with their or commensurate with their, their skills. Carter, yeah, any I mean, final thoughts? Well, the top end in, in corporate Canada is millions of dollars. Uh, the top end in politics is 260. You know, I mean, it's just, they're not even close in the scale. I will concede that 260 is higher than, you know, a lot of people will make uh, any in any given year in their lifetime. But um, politics is also not a closed shop. You want to get into politics? Pick up the phone, get involved. It's easy. We'll leave it there for that one. I'm sure there's many more deep dives to go into. Of course, Stephen will be putting his book on tape uh, on the deep dive of Alison Redford's uh, cabinet. It's a 19 cassette uh, uh, series. <laughs> uh, he will ship it to you uh, on foot, door to door. Three copies available. Uh, Stephen, uh, looking forward to receiving mine. <laughs> there are three cassettes on Jonathan Dennis alone. <laughs> it, it is amazing. It's a blast from the past. Okay, let's move it on to our final segment, the over-under and the lightning round. Guys, are you ready? Sure. Corey, let's start with you. Let's start with you. On a scale of 1 to 10, give us the ranking of of our big city mayors here in Alberta, Uh, Nahid Nenshi and Don Iveson, as they've been handling this pandemic. Do you have any questions, concerns? Scale of 1 to 10, what do you think of our big city mayors so far? I'd give them a B plus. I think that uh, there's there's nothing that really offends me about it, but I also can't think of any standout performance. Uh, Carter, I'm I'm more of a fifty uh, fifty type of guy. I think that they're uh, one of the challenges for mayors in this particular crisis versus like for example the flooding crisis or the uh, fire crisis in Fort McMurray. Uh, there's not a lot that the mayors can do. This is really a uh, outside of their capacity. They're trying to use their moral authority to uh, remind us to wear masks and things like that. But I think in some ways uh, they're muddying the waters and uh, half of me just doesn't want to see them on this particular issue at all. Uh, Corey gives it a B plus. Carter gives it a 50-50, whatever the hell that is, uh, as a score. Uh, our next one. Okay. You can be if more you are in what you're asking us to grade on. I mean... Yeah, their performance during the oh, pandemic. No, I, yeah, no, I mean, B plus out of 10. What's hard to understand about that? I got yours. Yours makes total sense because we understand how B plus works out of 10, but 50, 50, anyways. 
I'm not going to fight with you guys on this. Corey, back to you. Uh, If you are team Joe Biden, are you currently in or out on the strategy of having Amy Klobuchar floated as being your VP pick? So for people just to catch you up, uh, it seems like team Joe has floated out that Klobuchar is being vetted. Uh, It's, of course, been a polarizing conversation in the U.S. for at least for those looking at who his running mate will be. Corey, how do you how do you rank? Are you in or out on the strategy? Well, look, floating, you do that when you want to see what the reaction is, right? You you dip your toe in the water without committing entirely or you're trying to create buzz. Why not? I mean, it's a lot better to see what's going to happen now than just uh, there's no real lasting benefit in surprising people with the VP pick. So you might as well tease a couple of them out there. Uh, Certainly, Elizabeth Warren's had her time in the print. Uh, Klobuchar, uh, people will talk about a few ones. He'll make his decision if he hasn't already. But I'm sure he's doing a bit of a gut check if he has made the decision. And if he hasn't, it's a great way to sort of see what the reaction will be from the left of his party, from the Midwest, whether he gets anything at all. Sure. I guess I would say B plus, same. Yeah, I've expected that from you. Nothing else. Carter, are you in or out on the strategy for Team Joe? Um, I'm out on this particular strategy. I just don't think that it makes much sense to me to uh, float this uh, at this particular moment in time. And if I was to float it, I probably would float a couple just to see what the hell is going on. Um, I wondered where it came from. You know, I guess obviously someone had to uh, verify it, but it doesn't strike me as a particularly controlled, uh, you know, leak. Um, And it made me wonder if maybe Klobuchar was trying to get ahead of the game in some fashion and show Team Joe that she, uh, you know, they're they're, they're vetting more than one person. Um, That is for certain. And uh, the fact that only one name came out uh, makes me wonder if, if, Team Klobuchar is either being sabotaged or sabotaged herself. Corey, uh, sticking with U.S. politics, scale of one to ten, one being absolutely horrible, ten being a masterstroke. Uh, there was an interview that came out where Elizabeth Warren has been softening her stance on Medicare for all, uh, presumably to get herself into the race for for VP. She ultimately said that you know all we need to make is progress on healthcare. She's she's been less committal than she was full throatedly on on the campaign trail during the primary. But Medicare for all, how, what do you think of her strategy on a scale of one to ten right now? Do you think she she gains more or does she lose more in terms of that enthusiastic base that she that she'd built around her candidacy? Well, it's hard to know without knowing what her conversations have been with the Biden camp. And if she's hearing either directly or through channels that they think that she's too exposed on this issue. Look, this is her last shot. I mean, they're all getting up there in the years. This septuagenarian parade we've got of of political candidates in the United States is wild. But she's not going to get another run at the presidency here. That to me seems unfathomable. So uh, why not position yourself for the vice presidency, try to do good? I don't think she's ever been driven by the health care issue. I'm sure many people will jump on and, and tell me why I'm wrong on that front. But to me, it's always been for her Wall Street, the economy overall, the need to, to you know, trust bust and those things. That's what she cares about. She has made the decision herself that she's willing to let go of the health care thing, which was always kind of a, maybe a priority, but a lesser priority. Uh, so I, I think that's fine. I think that makes sense. Like I said, it's her last shot. You know, there's a whole musical about not throwing away your shot, Zay, and I'll send it to you someday. It's very obscure. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I may have heard of it. Another B plus by Corey Carter. What do you what, <laughs> what do you give it, Elizabeth Ward for this for this political uh, political strategy? You know what? I mean, sh- she's seeing that there is only one train leaving the station. She's going to be on it. 
Um, I, and I actually admire that. I think that uh, politicians should recognize. I mean, I like politicians to reflect back uh, what their people want. Uh, but in this particular case, um, it, it Elizabeth Warren sees that Joe Biden's going to be the guy. Joe Biden wants to talk about expanding health care coverage, not Medicare for all. She's going to talk about expanding health care coverage. She's on the team. She's a team player. That's all that matters. Carter, I'm going back to you for the second last question. The, a 2018 clip of uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper has been recirculating this week uh, of him talking, I believe, and you guys can correct me, on the Ben Shapiro podcast. Is that is that what it was? Him talking about how the media in Canada ultimately led to the to, to him not no longer being Prime Minister. Uh, the clip is is been uh, combated by by several. Uh, editors at, at newspapers and and several people running newsrooms across this country. Carter, on a scale of one to ten, one being this is going to badly damage his legacy, and, or, and actually ten being he's going to badly damage it, one being not so much. What do you what do you kind of make of it? I'm going to. I mean, I I think that this is one of those situations where um, no one gives a fuck what Stephen Harper has to say about his legacy anymore. Anyways. Um, he has not, not enough time has passed for him to be viewed in the rearview mirror. I think we're just on, uh, you know, Mulrooney at this stage. Um, you know, so we're not reinventing his legacy at this point. And to stand up, I mean, realistically, if the media had covered him less, he would have done better. Every decision that he made in that campaign seemed designed to cost him votes in Quebec and Ontario. And, uh, cost him votes it did so I, i'm afraid i have to uh you know not be on board i'm out on uh, stephen harper Corey, what do you think and why was it a b plus well look we're all heroes in our own epic it's not exactly shocking to me that stephen harper would point to external forces for the reason that he lost the election uh, the reality is more nuanced. Of course, people were fatigued. Um, the policy positions that were being put forward were not particularly, uh, well digested by the public. Uh, Justin Trudeau caught a wave at the end there. And, um, of course, Tom Mulcair, uh, got overrun by one, a bit of a, bit of a crush, a blue crush. Uh, you know, this metaphor falls apart because it's like the red party blue crush, but grievances about the media are not exactly a shocking development of right-wing politicians either. You look at any of the Pew research on this, you look at what a trusted media outlet is, uh, you know, small L liberals trust 70% of outlets, small C conservatives trust 30% of outlets. I'm, I'm not shocked. I, and and it, this is just such a big nothing burger of a story conservative politician loses election blames media like have we like have we never heard this is this what i'm supposed to pretend b plus <laughs> last question back to you Corey. car i'll let you finish it off thereafter uh give me give me your thoughts uh, you know this new york times cover for today um on communication strategy how solid was this them going out with the, a thousand names on their front page cover of those that this covid crisis has lost in the united states trying to punctuate that, that they're hitting the hundred thousand mark in the u.s talk me briefly through what you thought of this communication strategy um you know i thought the print version was really quite striking um i i was less impressed with its online implementation just from a pure tactics point of view I don't know. I mean, I, in some ways, I think this is the New York Times at its worst, to be honest. It's it's just like kind of this saccharine, 
you know, over important approach to the news that clearly has an opinion to it. And, and I get it. I mean, I have opinions about COVID too, but it's not really, I don't know what it does. I mean, I, I guess what it does is it makes a bit of a splash and makes people remember about the New York times. And like we were talking about last week, it's a business. So sure. Great. But otherwise it, it, uh, it's not going to have a lot of lasting currency with me. I read through a lot of that list. One of the things that struck me actually was, well, I already knew that most of the people who were dying of COVID-19 were older. It, you know, you really feel the age on that list. So I wonder if it almost cuts against in some ways, the point that the New York times was trying to make. Carter, what do you think of that strategy? Well, I mean, first of all, as a human being, I, I was moved by the cover. I thought that it, um, it had a message and I liked the message. I was responsive to the message. But I've said before man, many times on this podcast uh, that I think that voters tend towards selfishness. And if you don't know a person on that list, that list is meaningless to you. Uh, reading name after name after name, uh, you know, it's an interesting exercise. Um, but let's just say it does not have the meaning or the poignancy of like the Vietnam War Memorial where you can walk the, down and it takes uh, so long to walk past every one of those names. And, the, you know, you, you see the growing, you know, the, the growing number of casualties and then it drops off again. And, and there's, a, there's a poetry to it. And that poetry was not in the New York Times. Uh, and um, the selfishness of the population is really showing itself. Um, we are seeing that unless someone knows someone who's been impacted, they are very unlikely to be moved um, by the data or by the facts. And this, this just reinforces what we've talked about a million times on this podcast. Facts aren't going to change anybody's mind. And the New York Times put a thousand facts up on their, on their front page, and it's not going to change anybody's mind. We're going to leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 803 of The Strategist. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter, and we'll see you next time. Did we seriously not talk about the fact that Jason Kenney has a fucking MLA running around the province talking about the premier's office being overpaid and undercompetent? Yeah, yeah we, we didn't really touch on that, no. I mean, what a I shitty host. I, I mentioned it. I mentioned it. You could have picked up on any of the threads I mentioned. Now, here's the thing, right? What it takes to be a good guest on a podcast. Let me explain.